the things that can only be seen with the eyes of our heart. And that's what God does for us, enabling us to see him, to see the unseen, if you will. Uh, Open the eyes of our hearts. Well, uh, if you've been with us for a while, you know that we've been thinking together about a story that uh, Jesus told a couple thousand years ago uh, in Luke chapter 10 about what it means to really love your neighbor as yourself. What does that really mean? What does that look like? And so we've been uh, kind of studying that and looking at it from a number of different angles, and we realize that to do that takes generosity, right? And we said that generosity is meeting other people's needs with words and deeds. Generosity. Uh, What does it mean to love our neighbor as ourselves? Well, it takes generosity. And generosity is meeting needs, other people's needs, with words and deeds. And, you know, God is generous with us. God meets our needs with both his words and his deeds, Our Father in heaven, I think, is the first and the most generous giver of all. And I would like to say that we are most like him when we're generous. We are most like our Father in heaven when we are generous. For God so loves the world that he gave generously his only begotten son, something of intimate value to him. And so we learn from God that generosity takes sacrifice. And sacrifice is a word that we as Americans don't really like to entertain, right? Generosity involves sacrifice of something of value to us for the sake of uh, the person uh, that we love. If we're going to love our neighbor, it'll take generosity. Generosity takes sacrifice, uh, both in terms of words and in terms of deeds. And so... On the one hand, we have this God who is generous to us and so fills us with this. uh, uh, He meets our needs and fills and satisfies us, as Dan prayed this morning. And uh, on the other hand, we have a world that's full of people with needs, right? All around us are people with needs. And needs come in all shapes and sizes. And uh, we've sort of seen, uh, by way of review, that some of these needs come into our life because of what we might call natural disasters, right? Like earthquakes, like in Italy this week, or fires like in California, or floods like in uh, Louisiana. The whole uh, creation has been affected by sin. And there's all these upheavals and all these things that were never a part of the Garden of Eden before sin. And so there's, uh, you know, fires and floods and accidents and diseases and all of that. And then uh, we saw that some of the needs that we have are the result of uh, injustice or oppression. In other words, uh, other people treating people badly uh, and and ill treatment that happens, injustice, if you will, or oppression. Kind of like the guy in Jesus' story who got beat up and robbed. Uh, Somebody took advantage of him and beat him up and stole his stuff and, and left him half dead, as Jesus tells the story. And so... Um, Some of these needs that people have are issues uh, that arise from racism or wars or systems that are rigged against uh, certain types of people or certain groups of people. And so there's all of this, you know, creates needs in people's lives, hurts. And then finally, we said, you know, some of the neediness that is all around us, we create ourselves uh, when we make bad decisions, when we especially when we ignore God. And uh, we try to live life on our own. Our willful ignorance or laziness, our, our own sins. Um, and, but here's the thing. You know, Christianity <clears throat> is the one interpretation 
of our existence, uh, which first of all affirms our human condition. When Jesus, when God became a human being in the person of Jesus, he affirmed our humanness. If you think about it, God became human. And uh, when he became flesh, it, it meant that there's, there's no matter how needy a person might be or how far gone a person is, uh, they're never, ever beyond the reach of God's generosity, of God's words and God's deeds. And so the one interpretation, you know, of our human existence that comes to us from Christianity affirms our humanity. But beyond that, uh, Christianity doesn't leave us in our human condition uh, because God rises us up to become sons and daughters of the Most High God, infusing us with a new life that's of his own spirit, putting his spirit in us in order that we might be sons and daughters of the living God, calling him, coming to know him as Abba, uh, infused with this new life, and God in that process meets the deepest needs of our life. He transfers us out of the kingdom of this world and into the kingdom of God. And that eternal life that God promises begins, uh, not just after we die, but the life that we are able to live here because of the Spirit's presence in our life. And so my question this morning is kind of like, how does all of this result in us becoming more generous? Uh, After God is so generous to us and we live in a world full of needs, uh, how how does all of that result in us becoming uh, generous with our five T's, with our time and our talent and our truth and our treasure and our touch? How do we become more generous? How do we get to the next level in our generosity? Nobody argues that God is generous with us, uh, but in the story that Jesus tells, the good Samaritan, you remember, um, is contrasted with the priest and the Levite. The priest and the Levite Uh, According to the uh, passage in Luke chapter 10, uh, the priest and the Levite both saw the beat up guy, right? Um, And not only did they both see the beat up needy guy, but they both passed by on the other side of the street. Okay, and so, uh, well, let's look at this in 10, uh, chapter 10 and verse 31, um, By chance, a priest was going down that road where the guy was who was beat up. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. So what's going on inside the priest and the Levite? And what's going on inside the Samaritan? What is it that moves us or changes us? Uh, from being like the priest and the Levite who see the needs but then pass by and don't engage and so forth. Uh, What motivated the Samaritan to be generous? And we don't have to look very far to understand what motivated the Samaritan. Verse 33 says, the Samaritan as he journeyed came to where the guy was and when he saw him, he had compassion. He had compassion. The reason that the uh, Samaritan got involved was because he loved his neighbor. He had love. He had compassion, like Jesus has compassion for us. And so, uh, but what is it then, do you think, that keeps the priest and the Levite from being more generous, from having compassion as well? And I think if I had to pick one word about the priest and the Levite and about ourselves and what it would take to get to the next level 
in being uh, generous or representing God in our world today, if I had to pick just one word, I'd say fear. Fear. Um, And speculation on my part, but a huge um, issue that affects our ability uh, to get to the next level when it comes to um, generosity is whether or not at any given moment when we encounter whoever God allows into our path, uh, whether we're living by faith or we're living by fear. Faith and fear, I want to suggest, are opposite ideas. Uh, Now, I've mentioned before that the single most repeated command in the entire Bible is fear not. Somebody counted, I didn't count, but somebody counted and said there's 365 times in the Bible that uh, in one way or another God says fear not, Uh, like one for every day of the year. Now, I don't know if it's true, I didn't count them, but oftentimes in the Bible God is like fear not. And so a huge uh, part of whether or not we're able to get to that next level in being generous has to do with whether in any given moment we're living out of faith or we're living out of fear. Fear not. Because faith looks to God. And when we look to God, we find stability, we find security, we find abundance, we find belonging. Fear looks to ourselves and to other people and finds instability and anxiety and limitations and all the rest of it. And I think that's why the Bible says in in, uh, Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 6, without faith, it's impossible to please God. So if you have faith and fear going on in your life and you cannot choose to live by faith and start ratcheting up the faith as we go along in life, Uh, Notice what this verse says. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God, anybody who wants to become a Christian, must do two things. You must believe that he exists, and then you must believe that he rewards those who diligently seek him. And if you don't believe that, well, then fear is going to take the place that God wants faith to occupy uh, at the core of our lives and as a motivator Uh, of our generosity. But here's the problem with faith. Faith takes focus. Faith has to be intentional, right? Faith takes focus. Um, You remember we said a couple weeks ago, everything worthwhile is upstream. Nobody uh, floats, right, into faith. Faith is intentional. Faith is a choice. Um, Faith that looks to God is uh, an intentional choice, and it takes focus. Uh, It's a matter of choice. It's our choice what we focus on. Uh, One of the um, non-negotiable absolutes of a biblical view of life, or worldview, if you will, is that we as human beings have free will. We have multiple opportunities every day where we make choices. And it's one of the things God respects about us is that you know, we have freedom to choose. It blows my mind sometimes. God comes right out and says in the Bible that it's his desire that nobody goes to hell. That's God's desire, right? Every day people check out and go to hell. I'm like, you're God. If that's really your desire, why don't you just slap everybody upside of the head and get them all into heaven? Well, because God respects our freedom to choose. You can choose for or against him. You can choose faith or you can choose Fear, it's our choice, what we focus on. 
And uh, we as human beings have this free will. Uh, That great theologian, Dr. Seuss, he put it like this. You have brains in your head. You have feet in your shoes. You can steer yourself any direction you choose. You have brains in your head. You have feet in your shoes. You can steer yourself any direction you want. Choose. We have choice, and we have to make decisions, and we can focus on what we choose to focus on. And I'm saying that faith takes focus. Uh, You can drift downstream into fear. But if you're going to live by faith, it's upstream, and it takes intentionality. You can steer yourself any direction you choose. We choose our direction. There are tons of opportunities, uh, lots of chances uh, to boil down, you know, whether or not I'm going to allow the thoughts that come into my mind an opportunity to get in there or whether I'm going to just ignore them, whether I'm going to live by faith or live by fear. And so uh, the, the Bible exhorts us to live not by sight but by faith. Remember? Uh, 2 Corinthians 5, uh, verse 7. Let me start at verse 6. So we are always of good courage. We Christians, we always have courage. We are always of good courage. We know that while we're at home in this body, we're away from the Lord. We've got something to look forward to. We will rise up and so on. For we walk by faith, not by sight. That's how we live. And uh, verse 10. uh, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So at the end of our lives, in our bodies, at the end of this, you know, 100 years or so, uh, we all will give an account for what we did while we were here, whether we lived by faith or by sight, by faith or by fear, whether we chose to live by faith or by fear. And so um, it's pretty significant. And, And I think, well, it's very significant. If we go back to Hebrews chapter 10, um, you'll notice here that uh, in Hebrews chapter 10, Uh, Verse 36, how much is at stake in this whole uh, issue? It says, let me start. uh, Yeah, for you have need of endurance, focus, upstream. You have need of endurance so that when you've done the will of God, you may receive what's been promised. Yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay By my righteous one, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. Now listen to this verse. Uh, But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed. Shrink back, live by fear, we're destroyed. But those who have faith uh, preserve their souls. It's pretty important when we get to an issue in our life and we have to make a choice between am I going to choose by faith or by fear, there's a lot at stake. And the whole direction of our lives and our eternity kind of hangs in the balance. And so peace and joy that comes from God, you know, comes into our lives when we choose the way of faith no matter what the cost. And I would suggest to you, and uh, I think from my experience, um, I, I would suggest to you that, you know, it's not that hard to know what to do. I think it's pretty easy to know what to do, what's of faith, right? I don't, I don't think that's all that hard. In fact, when we um, choose to focus on our faith, knowing what to do is almost automatic. Uh, but then doing it is not so easy. I, I think the priest and the Levite, when they looked at that guy, knew what they should do. 
I don't think that was the problem. Oh, what should, I'm a priest. I'm a Levite. A Levite is just another rank of priests. Uh, you know? I, I know what to do. I know what I should do. I should care, right? I should have compassion. And so That's not the problem. The problem is, am I going to do it? And you know, wasn't that the problem of the lawyer that prompted the whole story of Jesus? Jesus says, well, what, is the, what does your Bible say you should do? Who's your neighbor? You know, how do I get eternal life? And so Jesus says, oh, you got it. You know. Just go do it now. But the lawyer didn't want to do it. Maybe he was afraid to do it. Maybe he thought he'd lose too much if he was to love his neighbor. Maybe he feared living that kind of life. And so in order to justify himself, he asks uh, this question, right? Uh, but the question really is the wrong question. And uh, he asked the question, you know, who's my neighbor? And Jesus said, no, the real question is, whose neighbor are you? And so uh, in Romans chapter 12, you know, I think we have a pretty straightforward answer about this. Uh, Romans chapter 12, the first couple of verses, I appeal to you, brothers, Paul writes, by the mercies of God, present your body as a living sacrifice. If you think of your life between now and the day you die as a living sacrifice, okay, holy and acceptable to God, which is spiritual worship. What is worship? Worship is offering ourselves to God, right? And then here's the verse. Don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. How is it that you change into a more generous person? How do you morph into being more like God? How do we do that? Well, be transformed, first of all, by the renewing of your mind, that by, the, by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. It's not that hard to know what the right thing to do is, but it's hard to do it. And it starts with a change um, in our minds. Uh, you can discern what God's will actually is, right? Uh, notice uh, how we change, though. We're transformed into more generous people, if, if you will, by the renewing of our mind, by the focus of our thoughts. Uh, what if every time you came up against some thought that brought fear into your life, you countered it or challenged it with a thought that was generated by your faith? What if God really did open the eyes of our heart, right, so that we could see him in all of his glory and know that we're his and know that he's with us, and we would make a different decision and go a different way and act differently uh, because we're going to make the decision on the basis of our faith instead of the basis of our fears. And, you know, in uh, Hebrews chapter 11, there's a whole list of people who made that decision to live their life by faith and all the different things that they did as a result of choosing faith over uh, fear. And so, uh, you know, how, how we think really matters. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. How we think really matters. Fear runs a lot of our lives, right? Uh, maybe we have a fear of old age, and uh, maybe we have a fear of getting sick, or we fear some enemies, or we fear death or rejection, or maybe we fear the future, and fear creates anxiety, and, and that's the opposite of the peace and the joy that faith creates that God wants us to live with. Um, you might remember um, this passage in... Um, Philippians, you know, in Philippians chapter 4, uh, where uh, Paul talks about this to the Philippian church in uh, verses 5 to 7, he says, um, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Don't be anxious about anything. I, I, that's always a challenge, right? Don't be anxious 
there's an alternative to anxiety. Well, what is it? Don't be anxious for everything. How I think is really important. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Live by faith. Take all your concerns and talk to God about it, and the peace of God, which surpasses understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Well, how do you really do that? Well, listen, the next verse tells us, right? Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about those things. Think about these things. What do you think about? Depending on how we think, our our thoughts then eventually turn to words, and our words are expressed, and our words turn to actions, and actions become habits, and it begins to set a pattern for our life. But it starts with how we think. How we think is really, really significant and important. And so Paul says, look, you have a choice about what you think about, what your focus is going to be. Sometimes in marital counseling, I'll say, uh, you know, uh, all right, so, you know, your husband, he's got a lot of faults. Okay, I'll give you that. But you married him. Doesn't he have any good stuff? Well, yeah, he's, well, let's talk about that. Let's focus on that for a little while. What's good about the guy? And so we start to make a list of what's good about the guy. And all of a sudden, I'm like, you know what? If you made a choice for a month to just focus on the good instead of focusing on the bad, I bet you something would change in your relationship. And it usually does. You know? And so we have a choice, and how we think becomes extremely significant. So Paul says, the Bible says to us, you know, whatever is true, think about those things. Well, where do you find out what's true? So you can't overestimate the value of the Bible in uh, living the life that God has called us to. Where do you find, do you find out what's true in traditions? Well, my mother always told me that's what's true. Where do you find out, you know, what's just? What's the right way to deal with people? Where do you, where do you find out what's really just or what's right? Do you, do you go to your business and say, oh, well, what are the business practices? That's where I can learn what's just. How to treat people. No, you go to God, right? You go to the scriptures. Where do we learn what's pure? Oh, just watch TV and you'll because listen to the politicians, then you'll know what's pure, right? You know, I, I mean, where do you go? If you're gonna focus your mind on what's lovely, where do you go? Right? Where where what's commendable? Well, you know, what people think is commendable versus what God thinks is commendable. Where do you go to understand what's really commendable and how to act and how to live and so forth? And so, you know, uh, what we think about, the way to change our life is, and to get to the next level in, in anything that's positive uh, starts with a thought, a new thought, a thought from God, a thought that challenges a fear. And uh, when we allow ourselves to begin to embrace that thought, Uh, the power of our minds becomes incredible. Uh, It it embraces this internal kind of shift. Uh, I think it's pretty well known that the way we think affects our health. The way we think definitely affects our emotions. The way we think definitely affects our relationships. And so it's so important to say, you know, what am I thinking about? What am I choosing to think about? Uh, Our thoughts affect our words and our uh, I read that, and I don't know how true this is either, but the average person has 50,000 thoughts a day. 
So let's just say for the sake of argument that that's true. So you have like 50,000 times during the course of a day uh, to decide whether you're either going to ignore that thought or you're going to invite it into your brain and meditate on it and think about it and process it and allow it to become a part of you. And uh, if you think about it and analyze it, eventually it'll turn into words and then you'll be able to speak about it and your thoughts eventually become actions which become habits and, and so forth. And so if your thoughts are faith-filled or fear-filled, it makes a radical difference in the outcome and in the uh, transformation of our lives. Uh, here, here's a, an example, I think, of uh, uh, what... I'm trying to say, again, it's a story that Jesus tells, this time in Luke chapter 18. And um, it's about two guys. And uh, in this story, uh, let me just read the first uh, verse. Uh, Jesus told this story, this parable, uh, to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated other people with contempt. Uh, Here's a huge problem if you're going to try to be more generous. If you're self-righteous... If you think you're good and you've pulled yourself up by your own bootstraps, everybody else is lazy and so forth, and you treat people with contempt because you're self-righteous. You don't realize that your righteousness has come from God as a gift and you don't deserve it and you're unworthy and all of that. And if you don't embrace the gospel and you think that you're better than other people, well, forget about generosity. I mean, it just militates against being generous because why can't you do what I did and pull yourself up, you know? I'm just not going to be generous. But if you understand the gospel, it makes a radical difference. And so Jesus uh, tells this story to the Pharisees. And, um, you know, he, he says, you know, the one thing that will kill loving your neighbor is self-righteousness. And then um, he goes on and, and uh, he says this. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. Now, uh, neither of those were great people. Uh, Jesus has a lot to say about the Pharisees and their self-righteousness. And uh, tax collectors were hated, right? They, were, they worked for the oppression. They worked for the Romans. They collected taxes for the Romans from the Jewish people. And not only that, but most of them then would pad the bill to feed themselves. And so if they thought you could pay more, they would just, you know, uh, charge you more in their taxes. And so, uh, you know, the Pharisees and a tax collector... Uh, are going to go and pray, okay? And so here's the story, verse 11. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed like this. He said, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector standing over there. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of everything I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes toward heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me. I'm just a sinner. I tell you, this man, the tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everybody who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Now they were bringing infants to Jesus that he might touch them, and when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them to him and said, Let the children come to me and don't hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Here's the deal about an infant or a child, right? They bring nothing to the table. They just take. They don't give at the front end, right? They have nothing to give. They just receive. And if you don't come to God like that, if you don't come to God and recognize that I have nothing to bring to the table, I am totally dependent on your grace. 
I'm totally dependent on your goodness. I'm totally dependent. I'm not better than anybody else. I've fallen short, you know, of your glory and what you made me to be. And um, an infant brings absolutely nothing to the table, and neither do we when we come to God and receive uh, his gift of salvation and grace and so forth. And that humbles us. That humbles us when we recognize, well, I have nothing I could offer to God for my own salvation. I have nothing to contribute. And every time I try to contribute, it destroys the beauty of the salvation that God provided for us all in Christ. Every time we try to say, well, what I have in Christ is great, but it's not enough, and I have to contribute to it, guess what? We mess it up, right? And um, that's what I think Jesus is trying to say here, these two people. But notice, if you will, uh, how they both think. The one guy thinks, I'm pretty good. I'm better than everybody else. The other guy thinks, I'm not worthy even of you looking at me. I'm totally unworthy. He's, he's humbled, right? Uh, God is generous, and I am unworthy. And when we realize that, uh, when we realize then that our neighbors all around us who have needs uh, have the same need for this life giving grace, this generosity of words and deeds that they don't deserve. And if we, you know, fear that we're going to kind of, you know, be depleted and these people don't deserve it, well, generosity just doesn't happen. And it's not until we're transformed in how we feel about ourselves or how we think, if you will, about ourselves uh, that we're able then to uh, ratchet up to the next level when it comes to being uh, generous. Uh, we realize that it moves us to become like the Samaritan. Uh, And I think first in our own families, and then in our church family, and finally it becomes a habit uh, out in the world in which we live. You know, in this uh, story uh, about these two men who go to pray, uh, it's presumably between two believers. They're both worshiping. They're both praying this isn't about race. They're both Jewish, Pharisee and tax collector. They were Jewish, right? The differences in how they think about themselves, the differences in the way that they perceive their interaction with God. The Pharisee thinks he deserves what comes to him from God, and the tax collector realizes he doesn't deserve anything from, from God, and he goes away justified. Uh, maybe Jesus was thinking about Zacchaeus. He was a tax collector, remember, that was up in the tree, and, and he has this encounter with Jesus. And when the tax collector goes away from that encounter with Jesus, the first thing he says is, you know, I'm going to be more generous. Uh, my words and my deeds, I'm going to give back the money that I stole. You remember? Like he has this encounter with Jesus, and he realizes he doesn't deserve Jesus' uh, salvation. Jesus says, today salvation has come to this house. You remember? Zacchaeus, the the tax collector, right? And uh, he goes away justified. And so it reminds me of uh, God's word uh, back in Micah. You remember, we've referred to this several times. If you were to ask yourself, you know, well, what does God really want from me? Uh, in Micah chapter 6 and verse 6, it says, what shall, With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Should I uh, come before him with burnt offerings? Or with um, calves a year old? Should I bring veal? You know, to God? Uh, Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body, for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what he wants. What does the Lord require of you but to do justice, right? To love kindness 
and to walk humbly with your God. Justice, kindness, and an understanding of the gospel that causes us to become humble uh, in the presence of God. And uh, if we drift, we'll drift downstream. We'll drift toward indifference, not uh, justice. We'll, we'll drift towards injustice. We'll, we'll drift not towards kindness, but towards selfishness. And we'll drift not you know, towards humility, but we'll uh, drift towards the opposite of humility, toward pride. And uh, so uh, it's important for us to recognize that uh, I think our, our thoughts are a choice that we can make. And in order to live by faith instead of fear, it's an upstream issue and it takes intentionality. When Paul uh, wrote to his young, uh, Paul the mentor wrote to his young mentee, Timothy, if you will, um, he said this, and, and in 1 Timothy 6, verse 18, here's the advice he gave to his uh, young uh, mentee. He said, uh, we are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share thus storing up treasure for ourselves as a good foundation for the future so that we may take hold of that which is truly life. Take hold of that which is truly life. Where do we find you know, true life? What's truly life? What's really living for a believer? And um, you'll notice what he says here. Um, first of all, to do good and to be rich in good works. To do good and to be rich in good works. Uh, you might call that serving. Serving other people. To do good and to be rich in good works. And then he says to be generous and to be ready to share. Call that sharing. Uh, serving and sharing. Where's real life to be found? Serving and sharing, right? Laying a foundation for our future. And uh, so, you know, I read this and I think, note to self, right? New thought. Life's really about serving and sharing with other people. And that's really what generosity is. Serving and sharing. And I want to suggest it starts with our families, and then it moves into our church family, and then it becomes a habit uh, with our neighbors out in the world, drawing others into God's family. You remember in uh, 1 Timothy 5 and verse 8, the Apostle Paul here uh, says, if anybody does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his own household, he's denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. It starts at home, right? This generosity, this words and deeds, and this uh, process of serving and sharing and taking our uh, five T's and using them uh, for the good of the people in our family. Serving and sharing uh, starts at home, and to be uh, conscious you know, of uh, other people, and not just to one another, but also to help uh, one another uh, realize that uh, in the family that there are people with needs all around us. Uh, way back in the Old Testament, Leviticus, you know what? Uh, God told the people of Israel, listen, uh, when you uh, harvest your fields, don't take it all. Leave some around the margins for the poor to come and, and glean and take away. And Leviticus 23, 22, when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall reap your field uh, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, nor shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. What God was saying there is not so much about food anymore for us, most of us, but leave some margin in your life. Leave some time to be able to get involved with the needs of the next person. Stop fearing that I won't have time to do what I need to do if I were to tend to a person that God puts in my path. 
uh, like the Good Samaritan did. Maybe the priest and the Levite were busy, right? And they, they were afraid. They lived out of fear saying, oh, man, if I do that and get involved in that, I'm not going to have time to make my meeting and, and, and so on. And so what God is saying, well, leave some margin in your life for some time. Leave some margin in your life with some money so that when needs come along that God brings into our path, we can address those and not be fearful that, oh, wow, I'm not going to have enough if I do this. You know, uh, leave some margin for getting involved, touching other people's lives and, and making a difference. And I think it comes from this principle, and it starts at home. It becomes a, uh, one of the illustrations of this, you know, was Ruth uh, in Ruth chapter 2. I don't know if you remember the story of Ruth, a little story in the Old Testament, but uh, Boaz, a relative, Ruth's husband died, and she came back with her mother-in-law. She wasn't Jewish, uh, and uh, Boaz was related to... Uh, uh, her mother-in-law, and uh, so he sees Ruth, and he says to her, "Listen, my daughter, don't uh, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, uh, but keep close to my young women, and let your eyes be on the field that they're reaping, and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And uh, when you're thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn, and so forth. So here, this stranger comes into town, and here's Boaz. Uh, everybody had kind of a family farm back in those days." And um, here he's telling his people, look, like, don't glean all the way to the edges. We're going to leave some for this stranger who's um, come into our midst. And if you know the story, eventually he falls in love with her and so on. So um, today, you know, our families, we have people around us who are, uh, you know, fatherless, uh, orphans, if you will. We have elderly people. We have uh, sick people uh, and so on and so forth. Uh, Is there margin in our life, or do we fear that if I get involved, you know, uh, my life is so maxed out that uh, I can't get involved? And then I think beyond generosity and loving our family is our church family, and uh, the church is God's family, if you will. And loving our neighbor uh, our, in our church family is a matter of be, becoming aware and becoming generous with one another. Uh, again, so that the world would look at the church and say, wow, your church does that, your church, you know, these people, you know, and uh, wow, I have those needs. And I wonder if I came into the church family, if I could meet the God who's the source of all of that uh, in your life and so forth. And so uh, there's always people with needs in our church. There's always people grieving uh, losses. There's always people struggling in relationships. There's always people uh, needing surgery or uh, sick with various uh, illnesses and so on. There's always opportunity Uh, for us to demonstrate this uh, generosity with one another. And then beyond our church is our Fairfield County community, and there's tons of needs in our area. Um, They're not usually financial in this area, but there are marriages that are, you know, really struggling. There are families, there are addictions, there's grief, there's loss, there's sickness, there's elderly, uh, there's loneliness, there's single parents, there's displaced people, and so on and so forth. And when we're like the priest and the Levite, instead of like the Samaritan, um, we allow fearful thoughts to take us away from opportunities to spread uh, the good news about our God. There are so many uh, needs. You know, sometimes I think we think like this, well, if I get involved, I'll be overwhelmed. So I just, I just can't get involved. Or if I get involved, I really don't know that I'm competent and that I could really meet that need. And so rather than uh, even put my toe into it, I'm just going to cross to the other side of the street, I might fail. And so I have this fear that I would fail if I got involved. And, or we might say, you know, I don't even know how to get started in, in changing and becoming more generous and so forth. And I would say you start by changing a stranger into a neighbor. Uh, I tell people, start with a smile. <laughs> It's amazing how many people don't smile. I like to watch people, you know, even on vacation, I sit and watch. 
It's amazing how many people, even on vacation, right, don't smile. Just not happy people. And uh, we start with a smile and, and a conversation and we become a good listener and an encourager. And maybe we find a way to give a gift or we share or we find a way to serve uh, somebody and so on. Uh, we want to find a way to introduce people to the source of our generosity, which is our God, which is the gospel, and which is Jesus becoming one of us. You know, Jesus is our ultimate Samaritan. Jesus is a good Samaritan to us. He comes from someplace else. He meets us in our time of need, wherever it is, whatever it is. He, he heals us in the immediate in this life. And then he goes on and he makes promises that are fantastic about the future that he will be there and he will come back and he will pay for it all and he'll make it happen and so forth. And uh, what a great thought this is, that uh, Jesus is our great good Samaritan and he invites us to allow him to live his life through us by his spirit so that we too can become generous and we too can affect the world like he did uh, in our day and age and amongst the people that he's put us. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, this is... uh, This is a great story that you told about the Good Samaritan and about what it means. Uh, One of the two great pillars that you tell us our faith stands on is loving our neighbor as ourselves. And uh, we're a lot like the lawyer, Father. Uh, You know, we know what to do. We know that that's what you want. But we want to justify ourselves. And oftentimes I think it's because we have these kind of irrational fears And uh, we look to ourselves and we realize we have limitations, but we instead should look to you. And when we have faith, Father, that, uh, you know, our biggest job is to help people get to know you. And then they have tapped into unlimited resources when they know Jesus. And uh, not just for this life, but for the life to come. And so in that process, I pray that you'll help us to get rid of our fears. And that wherever we're at in this generosity on the scale of one to ten, that Wherever we're at, we'd have a desire to get to the next level and that we would do it by facing our fears and and replacing them, Father, with more faith, that we would be intentional on where we focus and that as we do that, you would have the freedom to use us, Father, to make changes in this world and and in our neighbor's lives uh, that will enable them to see you with their hearts and come to love you like we do in Jesus' name. Amen.